Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org slash donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and we have a very special episode lined up for you today. Joining me for an interview is David Nicholson, president of Polyconcept North America, one of the industry's largest and most influential suppliers. Under David's leadership, Polyconcept has grown into a half a billion dollar organization. It's been a staggering run. On July 18th, the industry learned that Polyconcept was acquired by Charles Bank Capital Partners, a private equity firm focused on middle market companies. This acquisition marked the end of an 11-year successful partnership with InvestCorp. The 2005 acquisition, which consisted of PF Concept in Europe and Leeds in the United States, marked the formation of Polyconcept. In our episode, we will talk to David about the reasons for the acquisition, what it means for Polyconcept, and the industry as a whole. Welcome to the podcast, David. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Mark. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we start right from the beginning, David? I'm curious if you can relate for me your personal history and trajectory with Leeds and Polyconcept since you first joined. Sure. And I'm somewhat unusual in that I'm one of the few of this generation that can claim to have worked at the same company for now going on 20 plus years. So I I think I view my career as both having benefited from an industry that has been a great industry to have built a career in and certainly a great company originally with Leeds and now Polyconcept in terms of being a great place to spend that many years. And the main reason I've stayed. The short story is I was coming out of college in 1993 looking for something to do and happened purely by chance to find my way into Leeds. Leeds at the time was about $7 million in revenue, about 25 employees, and actually only doing a little bit in the promotional market. The original Leeds business was focused in retail. Right. A few years after that, we kind of made the switch to focus entirely on the corporate market, and that was really the beginning of, of Leeds successful run and we you know we grew very nicely and in 2000 the original founding families decided they were ready to sell the business and i think driven largely by what we were seeing in terms of opportunity recognized the business just needed more investment that the thing the families were comfortable putting in and and it just was the right time to find a new financial partner and so interestingly you know this was the first essentially refinancing or buyout of the business. We ended up with Bank Boston at the time. And the management team, myself and Michael Bernstein, continued and ran the business under Bank Boston for five years. And then in 2005 was the beginning of InvestCorp. And really, the, as you said in the introduction, the beginning of what today is Polyconcept and PCMA here in North America. 
Right. You know, in terms of my background, I started originally spending a lot of time in the sourcing and product development areas, probably through the 1990s, made you know, four or five trips a year to Asia and was traveling all over Asia. I took over as president of Leeds in 2003 and then ECNA in 2008. Right. And so I'm curious, when you first show up in the early 90s as a freshly scrubbed college graduate, what were you doing when you were first hired? Were you like in the shipping department? Were you a salesperson? What was that first role? Yeah, so first role was managing all of the sourcing and product developments. And it was actually one of the great opportunities that I had at age 22. Within, I think, three months of starting, I was on a plane to China. Wow. You know, in those days, going into China was still somewhat frontier work. Yeah. Not the China that I think most people see today. Uh, was still really early in China's development. Obviously, a great way to learn the industry from kind of the product side and the sourcing side. And I've maintained both in terms of my passion for the business, but also where I tend to focus still a lot of my time is on the product side of the business. Right, right. Well, talk about trial by fire going in three months and learning at the feet of these masters that put you on the plane. That's incredible. I want to switch gears and I want to jump into the news that I introduced in the beginning remarks about the acquisition of Polyconcept. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about why it was that you were seeking a new investment partner and ultimately the acquisition by Charles Bank. Yeah, and I think for those that are familiar with the private equity world, you know, there is a fairly regular life cycle as private equity firms make investments in companies. And as far as yep. you know, our our tenure with InvestCorp of eleven years, that's at least in the private equity world, a, a relatively long time frame. You know, the typical cycle would be five to seven years. And there is a natural progression that leads to these types of sale events. In our case, you know, we'd been with InvestCorp a long time. The business had grown nicely. And I think from InvestCorp's side, they were ready to realize their investment on behalf of their shareholders. I think from our perspective, we continue to see tremendous opportunity in this market. And it was just really the right time to find the next partner that was going to, you know, I think, bring a little bit longer time horizon than InvestCorp had. And I think that was going to partner with us in terms of backing our strategy and, and having a excitement for this industry and looking to continue to grow the business. So, you know, I, I largely describe it as it's, again, if you're familiar with the private equity world, yeah, you know, these are somewhat natural life cycles that occur over the horizon of an investment. Sure. I think that you could make an analogy if you're, uh, let's say, a venture capitalist and you've invested in a company that one of the ways that you can realize a return or achieve liquidity is through that company going public. Whereas maybe in a more private equity dominated environment, the way that one gets liquidity or recognizes their return is to transfer that investment to another private equity player. You know, and, and one of the things that we, we were very excited about with Charles Bank, but that was really important for us as we, we looked for our next partner was you know, I think obviously these private equity firms and Charles Bank included, you know, they're obviously, they are investing on behalf of shareholders. And so they have a financial interest. You know, I think what excited us about Charles Bank is that, you know, their value for us was more than just, you know, the financing. And this was the case with InvestCorp as well, which is they really are partners in the business in terms of identifying opportunities, supporting acquisitions, I think helping us both finance, but also think about our strategy. Right. So it, it is more than just a financial relationship. Sure. And to the extent that you're able to talk about this, are there other businesses within the Charles Bank portfolio that are complementary to Polyconcept, like any other people within the industry or people that are in adjacent industries that 
are able to provide relevant experience to you as you continue to grow? I would say indirectly, yes. So this is, in terms of the promotional products world, this is Charles Bank's first direct investment. They do own another company within their portfolio called Varsity Brands, who is focused more in the team and uniform and school space. I would say where there is some overlap is that, you know, in in that business, they are decorating product, albeit for different applications and obviously different distribution channel. But I would say there's certainly going to be, I think, as we get to know Varsity, some areas of synergies, whether it's sourcing overseas or certainly the decorating areas. Sure, sure, sure. So many larger suppliers and distributors are owned in part by private equity investors. We're seeing this with examples like Alpha Broder, Halo, Hub, each of which are quite significant players within the industry. Two-part question, do you A, see this trend continuing with increased private equity investment within the industry? And the second question is, what do you think private equity investors like about our industry? Yeah, and so maybe I'll start with the the second question first, which is, you know, what is it about this industry that's attracting these investors? Because I think it will lead to the answer to the question of whether this is going to continue. Yeah. Yeah, I think from our perspective, now having essentially this will be our third run with private equity, a lot of the dynamics remain consistent, which is what has attracted private equity into the promotional space. You know, one is this remains a fragmented industry and fragmented from an investment standpoint, and even from our perspective, provides a number of benefits. You know, you, you do not have the level of competition that you would have in some other industries. So, you know, I think while we are a large player, our relative market share is still fairly small. And so you just, you don't have two large players slugging it out, you know, with lots of power within the industry. And that just creates a number of favorable dynamics, both in terms of growth, but also in terms of, of margins. I think the other attractive aspect of this industry is that it's growing and it's been around for a long time. It's had a solid history of growth. And if you look at you know the aspects of marketing and advertising spend that are forecasted to continue to grow, promotional products is second only to digital advertising. So you know it's an industry that's going to be around. It's proven, it's relevant, even as the world has changed. And you know I think that also just as a backdrop, is attractive as you think about this as a place to or a space to make investments. Right. When you talk about growth, and there's no question that our industry continues to grow at a decent clip. If you spend too much time reading magazines like Inc. and Entrepreneur and Fast Company, it lends you to believe that the only industries that investors are interested in investing in are the ones with incredible growth amounts from year to year. And when you look at the promotional products industry, if we're growing, let's say, 3 4% a year, one might think that that's not particularly interesting to an investor. And it's interesting and I think positive to hear you say that investors are interested in that kind of growth, not because of the torrid growth rate, but because of the size of the industry and the fact that it's so fragmented and there's a tremendous opportunity for you to gain market share. So I don't know if I'm interpreting that correctly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, I think you have an industry that you know has a, a baseline of growth, and yeah, you're accurate, accurate in that this is not a high growth industry. You know, it's one that's largely going to parallel GDP, and at least in our view, but it does have because of the fragmentation the opportunity to grow market share and to do so profitably. You know, and I think that's really the attraction, which is you have a baseline growth, but really the opportunity to achieve higher growth rates through you know, execution, successful execution of right. you have know, a growth strategy. 
David, is there anything that this particular investment by Charles Bank is going to allow you to do that you might not have been able to do before with your InvestCorp partners? You mentioned strategy. You've mentioned that a couple of times at the beginning. So maybe that's a good opportunity for you to talk about the strategy and whether the investment is going to really allow you to execute upon that strategy. Well, I think I'd answer it this way, which is I wouldn't say because of a fundamental difference between InvestCorp and Charles Bank, but simply just given the time horizon. So we have a new partner that has now a much longer time horizon than we had with InvestCorp in the last few years. You know, we're able just to think about our strategy in a much longer time frame, And that allows you both to make deeper investments, but also investments that just may take a few years to realize or to pay off. Right. I would say the other, I think the other key difference for us is that, you know, Charles Bank clearly is looking at this as a you know, an opportunity to grow. They like our position. I think they, again, they like the industry. And, you know, I think we will continue to look at acquisitions and probably more aggressively than we have in the past. Right. I mean, we'll continue to look for opportunities to expand our services and products. And again, I think just we'll do so with a little more aggressive outlook than we have in the past. Right, right. So getting into specifics to the degree that you're comfortable talking about them, what does Polyconcept look like in the next three to five years? What we are focused on, and so what I would answer in terms of what will change from what we look like today, I think we'll be a more global company than we are today, if you look yep. five years from now. Certainly in North America, our goal, and we've, we've started this process and are going to continue to work to be a more integrated company. We've made a number of acquisitions. We have done some level of integration, but really our vision is to be a fully integrated platform here in North America and be able to provide a, a truly seamless customer experience. And so I think you know those, those are two focus areas. And I'd say the third would be that we're really looking and we'll continue to look to advance our digital capabilities. Right. Yeah. You know, what's not going to change is, you know, I think this is really important to me because as you get larger, this is always the fear. And what we talk about every day here is that as we grow and as we honestly become a more complex organization, what we can't lose is, you know, the focus on the customer that really was the roots of lead success through its history. And, you know, I think we'll continue to maintain this focus on innovation and this passion for bringing great products to market. And I think that's always going to be a hallmark of Polyconcept. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to hone in on one word that you mentioned in your answer, David, and that was integration, this idea of how you're looking to have a more integrated platform, a more integrated company, more integration with customers. I'm wondering if we can unpack that a little bit. Are you specifically referring to the idea of distributors being able to submit orders directly into your platform? Or is it also referring to having, I know that you've got a marketplace concept as well that you're building out, having different suppliers plug into your technology platform to allow them to take advantage of your distribution capabilities. What are some of the specific examples of integration? Yeah. And so I think first for us is, you know, I think from just an internal perspective, we ourselves have to complete our integration, which is, you know, moving all of our businesses to a, a single technology platform. And, and the reason that that is so critical is what you referenced, which is our ability then to, whether it's integrate with our key resellers and distributors, our ability to provide more integrated content out to online distributors. Or to pursue things like, you know, our marketplace in terms of being able to allow a true plug and play model where another supplier that is looking to partner with us 
essentially can plug into our distribution network. And I, I know you're, this is certainly one of your passions and a driver of common skew, which is, you know, this is an industry that is, you know, it's just, it's not evolved as quickly from a technology standpoint. And, you know, our belief is that that's going to be a key success factor for whether it's a supplier or distributor over the next several years. And certainly, yeah. so when I think of integration, I think of all, all of those aspects, but it's really enabling just, I think, our, our ability to operate more efficiently, but also our ability to work with our partners much more efficiently. Yeah, absolutely. And I also know that you've been very active and supportive of the Promo Standards Initiative and hats off to you for that. I know that you've also been collaborating with a number of your friendly competitors as well on that. And I think that that's work that all of you are putting together for the benefit of everyone. So I know that that's going to be a hot topic at the Tech Summit next week, I think, in San Francisco. So good on you for that. Yeah, well, thank you. And yeah, it's great to see the industry working together and you know, because I think we all believe that it's really important to our future beyond any one particular player. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to shift gears and I'm going to talk a little bit about the business model for Polyconcept, specifically the differences between Polyconcept's business in Europe and that in North America. So specifically, Polyconcept in Europe has a hybrid model where it sells direct via its agency business. I mentioned that in the introduction, that that's the business PF concept. So it acts as a distributor and a supplier in this hybrid model in Europe. Do you see this model coming over to North America? Why or why not? Yeah. And so historically, you are correct. We had, I would say it was a little different. It was a different division than PF Concept. It was actually a business called ADM, but it was an ADM right. business that sold direct. It was part of our group. We actually sold that business in 2013, and largely for the reason that we recognized and we made a commitment at that time strategically that our core business was going to be the supply business. Yep. ADM had been a, a legacy business within Europe for many, many years, and it just became clear to us that for us to really be successful as a, as a supplier in North America and in Europe, you know, ADM just didn't fit within the portfolio. Right. And I think that probably gets to your answer to the, to the second question, which is, our belief is that you know the reseller and distributor model is a very effective model, and I think our strategy is squarely focused on continuing to build those relationships. And so, whether it's owning a, a business like ADM or whether it would ever one day be selling direct, yeah, that's not honestly something that we see as a either a viable strategy nor really one that would make a lot of sense for us. Right. Now, you likely have answered my next question, but I wouldn't be a good interviewer if I did not bring in a conspiracy theory. So let's get into it. <laughs> so there are some people, they don't necessarily say this about lead specifically, but there's always conversations about bigger suppliers that are creating these technology platforms. So one day they can go direct and they're going to stab every distributor in the back. That's not what I'm saying, but that there are pockets of people who say that. What do you say specifically to the people who fear that Leeds is building a web strategy that will one day make it easy for them to be the next four imprint or Bell Promo or Leeds that just sells direct? Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I hit on this a bit and I, I think it'd be interesting to spend a minute on this. It's a question that we received a lot just in terms of talking to prospective buyers that didn't know the space, which is trying to understand why this two-step model still exists. Yep. 
and you sit on the other side of the fence, so I'm sure you have a perspective. But let, let me answer, let, let me get kind of the, the first part out of the way, which is we view the distributors as a very, very effective sales force for us. Yep. You know, our ability to replicate the tens of thousands of distributor salespeople and the reach that they have into every corner of and every market, it would be extremely hard for us to replicate that, if not impossible. Yep. And so there's an economics where it just doesn't make a lot of sense. The other thing I would say is, listen, Charles Bank just spent a lot of money and made a big bet on our future. And, you know, I think purely from an investment thesis standpoint, you know, the minute we start to sell direct, you know, we create a conflict with our customer base. And, you know, that conflict, we would just, we'd be throwing away 500 million in sales and, and, you know, that's just not, you know, it, it just would not do that. <laughs> uh, right, right. I, there's a certain that- rationality to it as well, which is, listen, if I'm not in this industry and I'm going to enter this industry, might I think about building a direct model? Yeah, maybe because I have nothing to lose. You know, there's no reason today for us, we have, we have a great business, it's growing, and we have great distributor relationships. You know, we'd be crazy to jeopardize that. What is interesting to think about, though, is, you know, is there a place for a direct sales model? And, you know, there's, there's some that have to varying degrees of success tried it. You know, is, is there a place and will that ultimately succeed? And what will, will that mean for the traditional distributors and suppliers? Hmm. Well, I think from my perspective, and I can come at this based on my distributor experience and then also more recently with my experience through CommonSkew in terms of how it is that we see distributors and suppliers is that at the end of the day, suppliers are very good at doing what they do and distributors are very good at what they do. And I believe fundamentally in my bones that distributors are in a fundamentally different business than a supplier. And in terms of what it is that they're able to offer to the customer. And I just think like at right sleeve, for instance, if we ever wanted to get into, this is a real story. There have been conversations over the years about, well, why don't we go direct to China? How hard can it be? I mean, we're already good at sourcing here in North America. And every time that conversation has ever come up, we always look at it and say, that would be completely ridiculous. A, because we don't have the financial wherewithal. B, we don't have the relationships. C, we don't have the time. D, we don't have the warehousing capabilities. And E, and this is probably the most important, it's not in our DNA. And if it's not in our DNA, why is it that we would ever compete in that space? So I don't know, maybe I'm a smart business person or a poor business person, but I would rather bet on what's in our DNA. And I think that a lot of suppliers, if they were to get into the distributor business, and of course there are a few that have done so, some more successfully than others, their DNA is with the transaction. And That is very, very important, I think, for a certain part of the end client market, but it's certainly not the majority where I think there's still that creative, hand-holding, strategic side of things, which distributors, or at least, you know, the good ones are able to do really well. So that is maybe my view from the cheap seats that supports what it is that you just said, not specifically about leads, but just about the supply chain in general. And again, I think we recognize that, you know, exactly that, which is, I think we understand what our capabilities are and Again, that there's a very clear role because we don't have those capabilities in terms of servicing the end clients. Yeah. I think the other piece that we think about relative to the online space, because that's that's obviously would be the angle that I think most people are concerned about. In some ways, you you know you can attack part of the market without a traditional sales force. 
yep. be a, an online strategy. And yep. again, it's much of what you said, which is the people that are really good in that space in terms of a you know building a web strategy, managing a site, acquiring customers online, and servicing them online. Again, that's just not a core capability that we've built. And really, our, our strategy is to find the best players in those spaces and partner with them, much yeah. like we, we would do with traditional distributors. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, I think it's always a concern. You know, I think the one thing that will be a question is if someone is successful at truly building a direct model, what does that look like in terms of the economics of that model? And what level of disruption or pressure does that put on you know, the traditional two-step? industry structure. And, you know, we, we haven't seen it yet, but, you know, if you look at almost any other industry or market, I think we can expect over the next few years, some level of disruption and change. But again, I think our view is that, you know, at least from what we see today, you know, there's a very clear role and value for the distributor as well as for the supplier. And it, it works well. It doesn't mean we don't have to continue collectively to improve how we do business to be more efficient, but there's certainly value in this industry. Right. I want to shift gears and talk about supplier marketing for a couple of moments here, David, and specifically with regard to your trade show strategy. So I believe it was this past year that you decided to pull out of all of the ASI shows. Can you tell me what drove that decision and have there been any regrets since that decision was made? Yeah, It was this year and it was not an easy decision, but what we, I think, have spent a lot of time, and this isn't just specific to trade shows, but one of the things that, you know, the position I sit in here and one of my roles, you know, is to really push the organization to think about where it's investing. And yep. one of the things that I think is is clear for any business, whether you're in this industry or any other market, is that, yeah, in today's world, you have to be much more focused and much more deliberate in terms of where you make your investments. There's too many challenges and there there's, uh, you know, too many pressures to not not really be be razor sharp in how you think about where you're investing. And so as it, as it relates to the trade shows, we had been talking about it for years and, and I think reached the point where we felt like we were ready to make that decision. And you know, it wasn't that we were looking to save money. It was simply we were looking to reinvest what we were spending in trade shows and other areas of marketing. Um, right. So one of the things we, we did is we still run a, you know, it's still important to be in front of customers to be able to show products. You know, one of the things that we have done to replace our presence at some of the ASI locations is we're doing these PCNA roadshows, right. which are essentially many PCNA specific shows. You know, it's interesting. It's it's an opportunity to have a probably a more intimate experience with our customers, and it obviously allows us to present the full PCNA line in a way that we it was just harder and harder to do within a traditional trade show format. The other reality is we we've channeled some of those trade show dollars into digital areas, which again, I think we've just felt are longer term, more important to our future. Right, so, right. Uh, as it relates to regrets, it's hard to assess. Did we lose something? Certainly. But you know, you, you don't make, <laughs> I don't think there's any decision where there aren't, aren't some pluses and minuses. And I think that you know, what you're seeing is you're seeing a number of suppliers Think about how they traditionally have gone to market. You know, you have a supplier who didn't print a catalog this year. I get a yep. lot of credit. That was a big, a big move. Yep. David, what's interesting is just digging into this even further. If we move beyond ASI specifically and just talk about the future of trade shows, 
you make the comment that you're starting to shift spend from trade shows into these more intimate customer experiences. You're starting to shift things into digital spends. So if we think back to the trade show concept, are they here to stay or will there be a fundamental disruption in the next five or 10 years that could see something like the expo and national show go the way of the dodo? Yeah. Well, listen, I, I think anyone in the trade show business is thinking about what that future looks like because it is going to change. You know, if you look in the retail space, almost all of the major retail shows have changed shape and format. And I think it's absolutely critical that when it comes to Expo, that PPAI continues to think about how to make Expo relevant. Because in my view, it's still a very important industry event. It's yeah. one opportunity that you have most of the industry together. And, it, and that goes well beyond what happens on the trade show floor. So from our perspective, we continue to support Expo. We think it's, it is very relevant. But you know, I certainly will hope that PPAI continues to think about how to make that an engaging and valuable experience beyond just going to see you know, products on the trade show floor, because I think yeah. that's really the future. And I think any trade show operator is thinking about the formats and and it, it's just going to have to be much more of an experience than just walking the show floor. And I think I'd say the last point, I think you're, you're, you're seeing this, I think the rise of these alternative show formats, so the EME style where it's, you know, it is much more one-on-one type of events and, and smaller, I think are going to be much more the way of the future than these large kind of mass trade shows. Right, right, right. No, I think that it's like anything, right? Whether you're a distributor selling promotional products to an end client or a supplier that's selling to a distributor or it's a trade show, it, it all comes down to the experience and whether it's more than just this straight up transaction. So I can certainly appreciate the difficulty in making that decision. I mean, if you've been marketing a certain way for 20 years, whether it's a catalog that you've printed or whether it's a trade show and to cut that off, I'm sure that it's nerve wracking. So hats off to you for doing that. And the asking the regrets question is a little cheeky because of course you probably you know, of course we all have regrets, but I think that the best business people are the ones that move forward without regret. <laughs> For us, you know, it was, it was interesting because it was, you know, the recommendation actually came from our marketing team. Right. With the full support of the sales team. And, and, you know, that's, listen, you know, for the sales team to get behind something where, you know, they're potentially not going to see customers that they've seen for years at these shows is, is a big move. And for us, it was symbolic that I think the organization was starting to recognize a lot of what we had been talking about, which is, hey, the, the world's changing and we need to change and we need to change quickly. Yep. And, you know, so... In many ways, it was one of those symbolic kind of burning the boat moments for us, but it was really important, I think, just is it forced us to continue to make decisions that, you know, where we're allocating to what we think is the future and being willing to let go of some things that were much more part of the past. Right, right. Just a few other questions before we wind things down. I want to shift into talking about the supplier landscape. Sure. And I want to just get your perspective as someone who has seen this phenomenal growth as a supplier that's in your DNA and your blood. So you have a lot of perspective. If I was a brand new supplier, so I had no connection whatsoever to this industry, and I was thinking about getting into the promotional products industry and Someone had given me your number to call to say, hey, how, <laughs> how should I go about this? What advice would you give me? It's interesting because I, I'd say this to you know, folks that kind of say, ask about how we've grown so rapidly. And listen, it, you know, when we entered this industry 20 years ago, it was a much easier proposition to enter and to grow than it is today. And that's simply just the reality of the market, this market. But I think that's the, the case for a lot of markets. It's, yep. it's just a, 
there's a lot more you have to be good at to be successful. And so, yeah, the first thing I would advice would be be prepared that it's going to be tough to break into the market. You know, there's there's not as much green space as there was. I think the the two other points I would think about if I was brand new. One is, you know, and I think this is still a challenge in this industry is that there's a lot of players out there that, you know, you look at, you're not entirely clear what their value proposition or competitive difference is, what, what the reason for being is. And, and I think that's a challenge in this industry, you know, that, and I, and I think if, so if you're new entering, you know, to be really clear on what your value proposition is, is I just think it's so critically important today because there's, there's a lot of suppliers that look alike today. Yep. And then I'd say, I think the second is, you know, this is still a large fragmented market. It's one of the challenges coming in as a new player is that it's, it's hard to reach all of the distributors. So you, I think you really have to be both think about and identify where you have the best opportunity and really focus there. Don't try to be everything to everyone. Right. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at your company 20 years ago, you were a smaller, very focused, defined company with a couple of product lines and a, quite a small customer base. And you distinguished yourself based on some service. And then you brought on a financial partner that gave you some money where you could then go and purchase companies like Journal Books and Bullet Line. And then now, of course, your company looks very different than it did in the first <laughs> the first couple of years. So, I mean, that's you'd be taking your own advice, I think, in that respect. Yeah, I, I um, so. And yeah, and listen, whereas we certainly have led the charge in terms of suppliers expanding their product range. And that's, you know, that really has been a trend over the last 10 years to where you have now. I think to be relevant to some degree, you either have to be very good in a specific niche or you have to be pretty broad. Right. So asking another question builds upon that. So what advice would you give to a small player, small supplier, I should say, that's already active in the industry? They understand the distributor model. They're on the trade show floor, but they're doing between one and two million dollars in sales. So they're a relatively small supplier, but they're looking to grow to a hundred, two hundred and fifty million dollars. What advice would you give to them to go on that journey? Yeah, and we we you know, just through our some of our acquisition work have the opportunity to see talk to a number of, of owners that are, are that size or even a little bit larger. And you know, what you consistently hear is that it's again, it's it goes back to my comment in the last it's it is tougher to grow today, what's required in terms of investments in technology, support it for suppliers supporting compliance, you know, building, you know, a, a large enough sales force. It's it's tough. So I I think a couple things that, you know, if you're established and you and you really are focused on growth, you know, one is you you are going to need access to capital and financing. You're going to need a, a capital structure that allows you to make some investments ahead of the curve. You know, that's sometimes tough for a smaller business. So I recognize yep. that. But I, I think it's, you know, just the level of investment that's required to scale today is significant. You're going to need a financial structure that's going to be flexible enough to allow you to do that. Right. I, I think the other thing that we typically see is that, you know, suppliers can get to a certain size as truly entrepreneurial organizations where the owner and a couple key people are doing you know, the majority of the work. You know, I think as you think about growing, you know, and this was, I think, really important for us is, you know, making the investments, not only in dollars, but in time and internal focus in the systems and processes and leadership that are going to allow the business to grow beyond what you traditionally think of as an entrepreneurial company, smaller company. Right. I think it is is really important. And I go back to my point, prior point, which is, 
if you're going to grow, I think you need to have a clear competitive position that, you know, that actually, you know, I think has value in the market. There's just too many other players out there that if you don't right. have a, a clear reason to stand out, it's going to be tough to grow. Right, right. So it sounds to me that you really boil that down into a couple of things. Number one, access to capital, a good financial structure. Number two, the willingness from the entrepreneur's perspective to transition into a more managed model as opposed to that uh, fire and brimstone entrepreneurial passion that sometimes you really need to be able to transition into that management structure. And then, of course, the other is the, just the ability to recognize your competitive advantage. And if you're just a me too person that's bringing in a knockoff leads mug for three cents less, then chances are you're probably not going to grow that much. Yeah, I think that's well said. So I'm going to ask you one last question. You've been phenomenally descriptive with your answers. I really appreciate it. But I recognize, David, when I'm speaking to someone like you, heading up a bellwether supplier like Leeds, that I'm curious as to what your answer about this question will be. <laughs> so what kinds of distributors are growing in volume with you now? And conversely, what kinds of distributors are shrinking in volume with you now? And specifically, what I'm looking for is it could be a distributor type, either by segment or by size. And so I think what we are seeing in terms of trends, and I'll, I'll get into specifics, but is very consistent with at least what PPI recently published around their distributor survey. Yep. And, and there were a couple highlights out of that. So one was that the larger distributors, so those more than two and a half million, were seeing double digit growth in 2015. Smaller distributors, those under two and a half million, were seeing actually declines in, in yep. their market share. And then the second was that the online distributors, and I think that includes both distributors that are purely online, but also distributors that have some portion of their business online, continues to grow at a rapid rate. And so what we're seeing you know, largely mirrors those trends. So we're seeing, you know, I think we, we continue to see both in terms of growth of existing, but also the emergence of new players in the online space. So that, you know, and those are distributors that you know, put their primary focus on a digital front end versus a traditional sales force. So I think that has been a source of growth and I think will we'll obviously continue to be in a, in a focus for us. You know, I think we continue to see strong performance from our larger, what we call our national level distributors. And we also continue to see strong growth from franchise models. So right. you know, those essentially networks of you know, smaller distributors, but that have pulled together you know, my sense is part of that is simply they are successfully acquiring more people into their networks. So they're growing, but not necessarily through organic means, but much more through M&A. You know, I think, you know, where we're seeing less growth, and again, this goes back to PPIs, is among our smaller distributors. Right. You know, I think, you know, the regional distributor and the small independents, I just think it's it's much like the story of the suppliers. I think it's it's just going to be a tougher environment to be competitive over the next few years. And I think that's starting to play out. Right. It's really interesting to get your thoughts there. And, you know, particularly around the smaller distributors, it's interesting that you make a distinction between the smaller independent, so smaller as defined by under two and a half million versus a smaller distributor that is part of a larger network. So whether it's for people who are listening to this, larger network could be something like Halo, it could be Geiger, it could be AIA, right. Boundless, so on and so forth. I'm curious about that with those networks or with those 
smaller distributors? Is there something when they join the larger entity that makes them a more attractive customer than being someone that's just on their own? Yeah. There are certainly advantages. So I'm, I might be a bit of a commercial for the uh, for the networks, and it's not not intentional, but I think there there's certainly benefits. And so one of that is. Yeah, you do get access to capital to fund the business. So one of the values of, of these networks is that they are underwriting the business and providing credit terms and negotiating those with us as the supplier. So there's clearly an advantage in terms of, from our perspective, having essentially that blanket over a large number of distributors. Yeah, I think the more progressive networks are looking at opportunities to integrate their technology systems with us, which again, we just we wouldn't be able to do with a, a single independent, yep. but we could certainly, yep. because of the, the aggregate volume, we could make the investment to do with a larger network or franchise model. Yeah, And then third is, I think they provide, whether it's the you know national shows that they would put on or access into marketing and kind of communication, it, it just provides a more seamless way for us to message into their network versus trying to do it independently, you know, on a one-off basis. So, right. and I think for the distributor owners, there's a, obviously there's a value as well for a lot of those same reasons. Right. Right. So David, in closing, I always like to give our guests the ability to have the last word. Is there anything that you would like to leave the Promo Kitchen community with as we close out the interview? I would say maybe I'll end with where you started, which is, you know, we talked a little bit about the sale of the business and what, what that means for us. And I, I just want to make sure, because I think this is most important that one, we view this as a very positive move for us, but two, that in terms of how we're operating the business, how we think about it, our future, our commitment to this industry and, and our distributors, none of that's changing. Our entire leadership team is still on board and still continuing with the business. And so, you know, I think to the extent that there are any concerns, you know, I, I would encourage you to put those aside. We're going to wrap up the last few remaining pieces of the transaction here in August and we'll be back and focused fully on the business here very quickly and very excited about the future and again, very optimistic about the prospects for this industry. Well, thank you so much, David. This was fantastic to get almost 50 minutes of your time. I know you're an exceptionally busy person and I can tell you that I've known you for many years and have certainly seen the company grow under your leadership and, and I continue to be in awe of it. So onwards and upwards for you and all of your colleagues at Polyconcept. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. Mark, thank you for the opportunity. You bet. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.